There's no shortage of inspirational Bible verses. Whether they're on a wall decoration, a Christian radio station, or a daily devotional, these positive and encouraging passages are the parts of the Bible that many people interact with most as they offer an immense amount of comfort and hope. But when you try to read the chapters they're a part of, you can run into what feels like contradictions to the excerpts we love so much. Tidings of goodwill are at times surrounded by disturbing warnings of death, destruction, and despair. It can seem like the solace that we find in these verses are ripped away by something much darker and much more bleak. The verses we use to help ground our daily faith start sounding like lies. How can we find hope in God's promises when they are surrounded by so much suffering? Jeremiah 29.11 is easily one of the most notorious passages with this problem. It reads, For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your welfare, not for disaster. To give you a future and a hope. I remember my grandmother had this plastered all over her house. It was always one of her favorite reminders that everything was going to be okay. It's understandable why you see this cross-stitched onto pillows and plastered onto social media bios. Its words of encouragement always seem applicable. But for my sister Hannah, the way people use this verse drives her crazy. I've seen so many times where people have used this verse on like their, their morning mug and they make little posts with it and they're just like, oh, things may not be great now, but God has a plan and everything's gonna work out. And it's like, you know, that's true, but like this is not the verse for that. Jeremiah is speaking to Israelites who have been violently raided and taken captive. They're in a foreign land they don't want to be in. All that they're hoping for is for a way home. And the chapter this verse comes from is God crushing that hope for good. It is literally like, hey, you know how you're living in this place that you hate? Well, here you are. <laughs> and it's just like, yeah, these people that you don't like because you were literally kidnapped and like forced to move, yeah, take them into your family. Let them marry your daughters, let them marry your sons. You marry them yourself. Like, that is not what they wanted to hear. Like, it's used for this positive and encouraging message, but really, the it kind of seems like the actual message here is, like, actually, like, kind of depressing. Yeah. When we finally get back to verse 11, it can feel so disingenuous and even insulting to read. I know the plans I have for you. How can we use this verse to anchor our faith when Jeremiah's point is so depressing? We need to figure out what to do with this passage and how to reconcile our hope with the bleak reality Jeremiah presents. To do that, I got in touch with someone who knows this passage incredibly well. My interest in the Old Testament has gone back quite a ways. Uh, I joke that I do love the New Testament. It's a good book. It's, there's just nothing in it I didn't already know from the Old Testament. This is Dr. Brian Beyer. Earliest memories that I have are of my mother telling me about Jesus. And I remember reading the Bible. My parents told me, you read the Bible pretty early. About the time I was age 
13, 14, 15, 16, I really began to feel God's nudge. Uh, the theological expression would be call, I guess, for uh, vocational Christian service or church-related ministry. He originally went to college with the goal of becoming a pastor, but that changed when he was given a unique chance halfway through seminary. I had an opportunity to teach biblical Hebrew as a teaching assistant there at the seminary. So at that time, Yvonne and I had already married and we were starting our family. And so I spread my last year of seminary over two years and I ended up teaching for two years. And God used that to start to develop a teaching gift in me, but also gave me the desire to go on and pursue doctoral studies. So I went on to Hebrew Union College, which is a Jewish school. Mm. Uh, they have uh, campuses in Cincinnati and New York and Los Angeles and Jerusalem. At any rate, I finished up my degree there doing hmm. Hebrew Bible or Old Testament and ancient Near Eastern history and literature and languages. And then in 1985, I came to what is now Columbia International University. And over the 36 years of full time that I was there, I taught undergrad Bible, I taught Hebrew, I taught Aramaic, I taught at the graduate level. I was academic dean or dean of students for about half that time. So a lot of different things every time God had something new. In addition to his teaching, he's also wrote all kinds of Bible study material for Lifeway, and even helps translate the book of Jeremiah for the Holman Christian Standard Bible. From chapter 29 on. And so I accepted that, and I realized as I was translating it, I get one shot at that reader. If I'm teaching a course at CIU or if I'm preaching at a church mm. and I open to Jeremiah 29, for example, and I'm reading it, I can pause, I can give nuances, I can paraphrase, I can amplify, but not in the Christian Standard Bible. No, there's a translation and this is the way it is. So mm. what is the best word that I can use to translate that nuance or the best couple of words or the best expression that when you go from Hebrew to English, Mm. accurately gets it across. Now, thankfully, what you read today in the Christian Standard Bible from Jeremiah 29 through the end of the book is not strictly what came right off of my computer into the manuscript. There was a <laughs> team of editors and people who proofread and cross-checked and said, hey, you know, in the earlier chapters of Jeremiah, mm. we've translated this expression this way. Should we go with that way or should we go with Brian's mm. reading or you know, what should we do? And so there was a whole team that worked on it. Yeah. But nonetheless, it was a special privilege as well as a, quite a responsibility. With his experience and his collaborative mindset, I knew he was the perfect person to not only help me better understand the larger context of Jeremiah 2911, but would also be able to help me make sense of what it has to say. There's, I feel like, a lot of people that take this verse at face value, but when we actually look at the context, it's not as cheerful as it first sounds. What, what, what is the larger context in the book of Jeremiah that we're dealing with when we're reading this verse? Oh, very good. And you're right. This is a verse that is often taken out of context. Now, when I say taken out of context, I don't mean that people like your grandmother or people like that we know who use this verse and they, they love this verse, that it's totally wrong. We're just saying, hey, let's back up and understand mm. the depth of meaning in this verse because the original context was not 
a high school student or college student trying to determine his or her future. It's something very, very different. Yeah. You see, the book of Jeremiah takes place at the same time as the end of Second Kings. Most of Israel had already been conquered and taken into exile. All that was left was the kingdom of Judah. They were the ones who were in Jerusalem, the ones with the temple, the ones who had a descendant of King David on their throne. But all of that wasn't enough to save them. Since King David, Judah had seen a string of corrupt kings, and while not all of them were bad, most were. Their immoral and unethical leadership sent the kingdom into a downward spiral, a people who failed to trust God and to love their neighbors. The corruption and faithfulness would eventually lead to Judah's downfall, and that's exactly what we get to see play out. Jeremiah prophesied during the last 40 years or so of the kingdom of Judah. And during the time that Jeremiah began his prophetic ministry, Josiah, the last good king of Judah, was ruling. Mm. Well, Josiah was taken out by the pharaoh of Egypt, Necho, in 609 BC. And after that, all the kings who followed were bad spiritually. Mm. And so Judah was fading fast. But one of the big issues, there's a key word that occurs again and again and again in Jeremiah, and that is the Hebrew word sheker. If we were writing it out in English, we would probably write it S-H-E-Q-E-R. And it means deception. It means falsehood. It means lie. Mm. Uh, and, and this is the big lie. This is the big sheker in Jeremiah. Do you see that temple right there? That's Solomon's temple. It's a glorious temple. Isn't it amazing? Yes, God said that he would put his glory there forever. Mm. You see those people in the white robes? Those are the priests and the Levites, and they're taking care of us. They know all the rules and regulations to keep things in order, and so they've got the sacrificial system down, and they're doing everything right to make sure that we're good before God. And then just look over your shoulder down the hill there a little bit. You see that palace that's where the son of David lives. And God made a promise to David back in 2 Samuel 7 that he would never lack a man on the throne of Israel. So we have our temple, we have our priesthood, and we have the son of David. We're good. Mm. And what the people forgot as they embraced that shekher, as they embraced that lie, was that God had said, even to Solomon, if your people are faithful, if your descendants walk after me, yes, I will bless this place. My glory will be here. But if not, I may just bring terrible judgment against you for your wickedness. Mm. And it was true later as when God made this promise to David. David understood that as he's dying. In First Kings chapter 2, it records how as David is passing the torch to Solomon, he says, remember, what God said to me, if your sons are faithful, they will never lack a man on the throne of Israel. So the people in Jeremiah's day had forgotten that. They thought, mm. we've got the temple, we've got the priesthood, and we've got the line of David, so we're good. And when Jeremiah challenged them on that, it was sort of like they said, no, 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 wait, 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 Jerry, let's go back and, and review this. <laughs> we've got the temple, we've got the priesthood, we've got the line of David, we're good. And mm. Jeremiah's task was to tell them, no, we're not. That's mm. not what God said. You're buying into this shekher mentality, and it's going to cost you. Basically, the, the setting for this book as a whole 
is essentially Jeremiah responding to this sense of false hope, this idea that um, Israel was completely scot-free of any responsibility to uphold the relationship and the faithfulness that they as a nation had with God. Um, They looked at their history, they looked at their stuff, and saw the prestige in that and basically said, hey, we're good. Jeremiah's goal throughout this this whole book, it seems like, is to try to kind of get Israel out of this lulled sense of false security. Is that essentially what's going on here? I would say so. Essentially, this false security is is there, and and part of it is brought on by the leadership. The leadership is telling them we're good. Again, back to the big lie. Here's the temple. It's Solomon's temple. God said he would promise to be. He promised he would be there. Uh, mm. Here's the priesthood. They're taking care of us. They know all the details of the rules and rituals. Oh, but I don't. I don't know about all those sacrifices. That's okay. The priests mm. do. They'll keep us all in line. They'll make sure that we're all kosher in a sense. And then the line of David. Just look at that promise. You can read it for yourself in the scriptures about how God promised David that he would always have a man on the throne. And so there he is. And so we're good. Yeah, but I don't know. Sometimes I think, no, 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 no. You know, we're we're good. We're good. And so this, this lie is brought on by the leadership and those in power are just continuing to foster this mentality that, no, no, things are good. When Jeremiah, in fact, is telling them, Things are not good. God is not pleased. Yeah. Over the course of Jeremiah's writing, he speaks for God about the truth of the matter. As the nation begins to collapse and the lie finally begins to reveal itself. When the Babylonian armies under Nebuchadnezzar came in and deported population groups, it took place essentially in three waves. Around 605 BC, the first wave of exiles went into exile. The Babylonians came they took some of the leadership. And it was at that time that Daniel and his friends, uh, we know them mainly as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the book of Daniel. All those guys went into exile, but there were still Jewish people living back in Judah. Mm. Then around 598, 597, the next king comes on the scene. His name is Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim is only 18 when he takes over. And when he takes over, the Babylonian Babylonian armies are moving in on his uh, territory surrounding Jerusalem. Well, Jehoiakim hangs in there for three months and then he realizes there's no way. So he and a lot of the royalty Mm. surrender to the Babylonians. And so then they are taken into exile. And that's around 598, 597. And Nebuchadnezzar appoints the last king, Zedekiah, and he puts him on the throne. And Zedekiah lasts about 10 years, and then he rebels Hmm. against Nebuchadnezzar. And when he does, then the Babylonians say, that's it. And they come back and they destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple. And it's really a dark hour in Old Testament history. So Jeremiah 29 is in the context of the second deportation. The first few verses of chapter 29 specifically say, now this is the text of the letter that he wrote. And in verse 2, it says, this was after King Jeconiah, which is another version of the name Jehoiakim, Mm. the queen mother, the court officials, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metalsmiths had left Jerusalem. In other words, all the people who have the wherewithal to maybe 
start another revolt. Mm. A lot of the common people are still there, but a lot of the leadership is now gone. And the letter was sent to from Jeremiah to the people who are now in Babylon. So that's the context for Jeremiah, this second deportation, because you get people over there in exile. And now what? We thought, what, what about this? Was it a lie that we bought into? Mm. Was it really, as Jeremiah said, were they really words of Shekhar that we couldn't believe in the temple and the priesthood and the son of David? Or has God maybe just slapped us on the wrist and we're going to turn around and go back within a year or two? Mm. But the context of what was going on when Jeremiah was writing, we can have a much better understanding of how his audience was feeling, what questions were going through their heads, and why God shares this message. Take a moment and try to imagine what the average Israelite was feeling. They were in exile, forcibly taken farther from home than they had ever been before. If their family wasn't murdered, they were who knows where, suffering the same persecution they were starving, abused, defeated. Not only that, but the promises their religious leaders had been spouting all these years were now blatant, foolish lies. God had let the unthinkable happen, and now the root of their faith was crumbling along with their kingdom. For a lot of Jeremiah's audience, that's kind of the the decision that they have to make. Do I continue to hold on hope to this this false prophecy that you know we're going to be fine we're going to be okay we'll be back in a year um or do i just give up on this my family's god in general and and move on to the culture that has taken it over is that kind of the the situation that a lot of these israelites would have been in it's likely that a lot of people were doing a lot of soul searching hmm. what does this all mean we were we grew up on the idea that the temple, the priesthood, and the line of David, basically, it's all good. They're going to take care of us. Yeah. And now we're hundreds of miles away in Babylon. <laughs> and there's already been one wave. And now in Jeremiah 29, there's a second wave of people. And these people are part of that. Mm. And they don't know it yet, for sure, because it hasn't happened. But there is going to be a third wave of people who go into exile. And so for a lot of people, they're wrestling with this. But what Jeremiah tries to help them understand, in the rest of the book, and also to some extent in the book of Lamentations, mm. is that the defeat of Judah, the defeat of Jerusalem, is not the defeat of God. Mm. The defeat of Jerusalem, the defeat of Judah, is not the defeat of God. And this is something very countercultural in terms of the whole ancient world, because when you read the writings of the Assyrian kings who went out and conquered the world, when you read the writings of Nebuchadnezzar and other Babylonian kings who went out and conquered countries and the rest of the inhabited world to a large extent, you read about how by the power of Asher, my God, or by the power of Bel or Marduk, my God, I went and did this. And so it's kind of like the my God can beat up your God yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. My dad can beat up your dad. My God can beat up your God. And so if the Babylonians come over and they conquer Judah, that means that Bel or Marduk, the chief God of the Babylonians, is supreme over this so-called puny God, Yahweh, who rules over Judah. And so what Jeremiah tries to teach them then in, in part of the book is, yes, exile is coming. Yes, exile is awful. 
and the defeat of Jerusalem was terrible, but that doesn't mean that God lost. Mm. This is all actually part of God's purpose. It's not so different, I suppose, when when people saw the crucifixion of Jesus mm. and those who trusted in him and those who thought he was the Messiah. Now they see them see him hanging on this cross, and what does that mean? And they had to do a lot of soul searching. Well, within a few days, they got their answer. Mm as they saw the risen Jesus. But these people in Jeremiah's day have 70 years to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's really interesting you bringing out that cultural idea of um, spiritual beings being highly connected to the countries that worship them. This idea that for a lot of them, it was one and the same almost, that nationalistic pride is also... Um, this this act of worship to your God, and you know when you do well, that means that your God is is pleased with you, or or, or at, even more so that your God is doing well as on the spiritual battlefield as well. If you're not doing well, then very clearly that means that those other people's gods have to be stronger. It, it sounds like that cultural idea is very connected to the the lie um, that people in Jeremiah's day uh, were buying into. Did they get that lie from just their neighbors, or were there people inside Israel that were helping feed into that lie? I suspect in Jeremiah's context, it was largely the people of Judah themselves, the leadership of the country of Judah, who were feeding that. We've got this and everybody wants to hear good news <laughs> as opposed to bad news. Some people wonder, well, why didn't they listen to Jeremiah? Well, you have all these false prophets running around saying, as as Jeremiah says in, in chapter 6, Jeremiah says, these false prophets, they have healed the wounds of my people superficially, yeah. saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And so who do you want to listen to when times are tough? Do you want to listen to the prophets who say, Oh no, it's going to be okay. No, we're really okay. Look at the temple. Look at the priesthood. Look at the line of David. We're we're good. We have all the pieces in place. As opposed to somebody who says, No, no, no. God's going to make this city like the ancient city of Shiloh, which he allowed the Philistines to destroy. Mm. So do you want to hear to do you want to listen to Mr. Doom and Gloom? <laughs> or do you want to listen to these folks who are saying, No, 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 this is just a temporary setback. It's going to be okay. Yeah. And so that that's probably a lot of it. It's the leadership but then it's empowered as well and fueled by these false prophets running around. Mm, okay, gotcha. At this point, I fought back to my conversation with Hannah and noticed a very interesting parallel between the false message Jeremiah was fighting against and the issues we run into today. It's like, it is a great Instagram verse to just throw up there and be like, oh yes, we're so spiritual, it's so late. And it's like, what's actually happening is God's going, I have a plan, it's gonna turn out good, but it is not going to turn out the way you hope. Mm. Um, and and I think like a lot of times when I see this verse being used, it is like, it is trying to reinforce, oh yeah, everything's gonna work out for God's people. And it's like, no, 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 this is, the context is God saying, hey, trust me, even when it's not working out the way you wanted it to. If we're not careful, words of encouragement like these can become the very kinds of false hope that Jeremiah was fighting against. Taking a long look at the context surrounding these passages can sober us up to the reality God is trying to reveal to us. 
In that sense, I find it fascinating that this iconic feel-good verse is in the middle of one of the most disturbing books in the entire Bible. You don't have to read far into it to see what I mean. Bloodshed, assault, cannibalism, enslavement, and every other kind of evil you can think of. It's all here in gory detail as Jeremiah describes the coming judgment that's about to fall on Israel. How does how does that interaction with like Jeremiah versus the false prophets, how does that affect how Jeremiah writes his his prophecies? I, I'd imagine that that has something to do with um, how violent Jeremiah can get sometimes with his imagery of Israel relationship with God. Do you think that was impacted by him actively trying to fight for, for time against these false prophets? Perhaps. I know that when he speaks of a lot of these bad things, they're just going back and, and looking at it and, and refreshing my understanding of some of these passages in preparation for our time together. Hmm. And is the, the ancient world was a cruel world. Hmm. God did not have to tell the Babylonians, go in there and be brutal when you <laughs> conquer these people. Yeah. He didn't have to tell the Assyrians. The Assyrians, because of their own sinful natures, you know, people can think of these things on their own without God saying, what about this mm. despicable act? And so that's there. And when Jeremiah, so many times when he says, you know, you're, if, if this goes to a siege, if the Babylonians come against Jerusalem, mm. people are going to die because there is going to be no food left. And when people die, they become food for the living. Now, God doesn't have to tell people to do that. That's just something that people in these dire circumstances think of doing, that they have to do this. And in the book of Lamentations, you see how bad it is because Jeremiah says, the hands of compassionate women boiled their children. Mm. This isn't something that, um, that God decreed as much as this is the natural outcome of people's sin. And so you know, it's, a, it's a tragic image because when the mothers will do this, you know how bad things have really gotten mm. in Judah at that time. And so Jeremiah knows what siege warfare is like. He knows what could happen when an invading army comes in and the people who are there the women and children and all the whatever they have become the spoils of war for the conquering armies. And so he's warning them with these strong words, not so much because he's saying, this is what God's going to do to you, mm. as much as think about it, guys, think about it. If we go to war with the Babylonians, what could happen? What likely will happen? And yet there are places in Jeremiah where he assures them God will take care of you if you truly trust him. But if we're going back to this Shekhar mentality, oh, there's the temple, there's the priesthood, there's the line of David, we're good, then that's not going to work. Hmm. So I, I think that's a really important point to really draw out. Um, this idea that God isn't just being um, vengeful or spiteful or petty when he tells Jeremiah to to say these prophecies. When Jeremiah talks about the death and destruction, the when he talks about um all of the violence that that's going to come up, the, you know, I you you mentioned that passage about the mothers eating the children, and it's just these vile pieces of imagery. Um 
it's really disturbing for a lot of people, I think. And as you're reading through this, God's actively saying, hey, I have plans for you, you know, plans to prosper. Isn't that nice? And I think, you know, that's why a lot of people focus in on this verse because it's nice. It's it's really pleasant, but the context around it, it's it's really disconcerting because it seems like God's promise is not one of prosperity, um, but of one of continued suffering and pain and death. Balancing that with this this promise of of hope um, is is very strange and very um, unnatural feeling, and I think what you were just saying about th- those those elements of suffering and pain, that's not a part of God's promise. I think that's what you're saying here, that rather that is a result of um, God allowing us to have free will, God allowing us to make the decisions of, Israel, are you going to be faithful to me? They chose no. They chose to prioritize other things that allowed their 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 society to really kind of crumble to be um bruised and to the point where people aren't faithful people aren't loving um and there is is suffering that is self-imposed uh it, it is god's promise does that include this suffering, or is it self-imposed actions? Is that the the judgment that that uh, Jeremiah has his eyes on? It might be difficult to draw a hard and fast line in terms of all the differences that of the nuances of the judgment, because mm. in the scriptures you have the concept of God bringing judgment. Genesis, the book of Genesis, talks about how God brought a flood. Yeah. To destroy humanity for its sinfulness, so that wasn't the people bringing it on themselves exactly. There, there was a judgment that came upon the world because of its sin. Other times, there are times when God allows the consequences of our actions to be the judgment, mm. and so He doesn't have to bring it because we've brought it on ourselves, and so He does allow it. And yet the scriptures tell us that he uses all of it for his grand purpose. So in the New Testament book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 28, Paul says that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so there he's speaking to a church, but he's also speaking to individuals. And we can take that verse, and when things that we consider good happen to us, we can say, well, we can see how God is using that for his purpose. And when things that are bad, we think they're bad, mm. that we don't understand. When those things come, we can say, well, uh, let me do an assessment. Why might this happen? I don't know. Maybe I do. Maybe it is sin in my life. Maybe it's not. But ultimately, I know that God is going to work all things together for his greater purpose and for my ultimate good Uh, as I trust him and as I yield to him. Now, in Jeremiah 29, we're talking about God's purpose for a nation. Mm. There are individuals who are right with God. Mm. They're right with God. They're they're genuinely 
mourning and lamenting how bad Judah has gotten. And some of them probably went into exile Mm. with their guilty brothers and sisters. Some of them stayed behind to farm the land, the poor people of the land. But they experienced as individuals, the consequences of the sin on the nation. So it's a little bit different here because in Jeremiah 29, God is especially talking about the consequences that he has uh, for the nation. But what about those who were faithful to God? Sure, there was a lot of people that were unfaithful, but it's clear that some are still faithful to God, loving to their neighbors. How are they supposed to trust in the plan that God has for them? How can they have hope when their faith didn't change their outcome? Why bother when their faith seems to have meant nothing to God? We'll spend some time exploring that in just a moment. We've covered a lot of ground here, so let's take a moment to take it all in. We'll be right back. Let's look back at what we've discussed so far. Jeremiah 29:11 is a beautiful sounding verse with a fantastic message of hope. But when we looked at the rest of the book, we realize it's a much messier situation than it first appeared. At this point in the story, many people in Judah have been violently taken from their homes and are now in a strange and foreign land. They're in this situation because of their corrupt leaders and neighbors. They were blindsided by the downfall because they had a false hope in the religious leaders' lies. They were unfaithful to God, and now they were suffering the consequences. They were the same consequences Jeremiah had spent years warning them about describing in gruesome detail what they were creating for themselves. Now, with their false hope having been crushed and their faith shaken, Jeremiah offers a new path forward, a way to live well in a place that would otherwise seem hopeless as they work to rebuild their faithfulness. As optimistic as that sounds, there's a large part of this that still feels depressing, disingenuous, and even unfair. I, I want to focus a little bit more on those people that are in the nation that are faithful to God um, and that are still dealing with all of the consequences and judgment of Israel in general. Um, <laughs> that feels like such a, a bad deal for them. It, it feels almost unfair. And I, I feel like for those people, it would be really difficult to balance the hope that that God is faithful um, with the suffering and the judgment that they are uh, experiencing despite being faithful. H- how does Jeremiah balance the hope for the faithful with the judgment that Israel is experiencing in that moment? Delicately, that's the short answer, I guess. He's back and forth. And sometimes when people read the prophets, they see judgment and they will say, oh, I I tried to read the prophets, but they all sound the same. It's just God hates sin. God is angry at his people. Mm. 
Well, not totally. I mean, there's there's an element of truth in that. The prophets, to some extent, are remedial. In other words, a lot of the prophets just point back to the word of Moses, the law of Moses, and they say, hey, basically, if, if you guys would just back to the Torah, back to the law, back to the teaching that God gave through Moses at Sinai, if you guys would just do this, we could go back to our day jobs and we wouldn't have to be doing what you uh, we wouldn't have to be here calling you back to that. Now they do. The prophets also talk about the current generations. They talk about future generations. They talk mm-hmm. about great plans that God has in the future for His people. They talk about the Messiah. They talk about the great coming kingdom when God's going to make everything right, and there's no more sorrow and so forth. So they do that, but to a large extent, the prophets point back to the law of Moses and they say, "Folks, just just do that. God has given you everything you need." So just live with that. And and Jeremiah does have some key chapters in his book where he talks about hope, where he talks about a future. In Jeremiah chapter 18, we read the account of Jeremiah goes down to the house of the potter. Hmm. And he sees a man, the potter, uh, fashioning clay on the potter's wheels. And as he does that, the clay becomes marred, gets messed up. Hmm. And so the potter just puts some water in it. Uh, starts to work it again and reshapes it into something according to his purpose. And the message of that is, the message of that is, if I decree judgment against a people, but that people turns to me, repents, sorrowfully seeks my face, then I will turn that judgment into blessing. Mm. However, if I decree blessing on a people and they say, oh, well, then we've got it made. In this case, Judah, we've got the temple, we've got the palace, we've got the priesthood. Then it just may be that they will find themselves on the judgment side of things. Mm. So I really understand Jeremiah 18 as shaping a lot of the narrative because as you get farther into Jeremiah chapter 36, 37, 38, Jeremiah has some really heavy stuff to say. Yeah. He says, we're going to lose, we're going to lose. He's demoralizing the army. They're trying to hold back against Babylon. And Jeremiah goes around saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't be fighting. You're fighting against God. If you fight against Babylon, don't do this, don't do this. And so he's thrown in prison and because he's demoralizing the army. And in Jeremiah 38, this is one where I just shake my head like, oh man, this, this just shows me what Jeremiah is really about in terms of the hope. Hmm. Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, calls Jeremiah in for another, a secret conference one last time. Hmm. And he says, is there a word from the Lord? And Jeremiah says, yes, yes, you're going to be given into the hands of the king of Babylon. And then he says to the king, please, your majesty, listen to what I'm telling you. Hmm. If you surrender, you will not be killed. The city will be spared and the temple will be spared. Now, this is after all these chapters of Jeremiah saying, it's going down, it's going down, it's going down. The city will be burned, the temple will be burned, right? It sounds unconditional. Yeah. But in Jeremiah 18, Jeremiah has made it clear, as long as people have the opportunity to make a moral decision in the right direction, judgment can turn to blessing. Mm. So right at that last point, we've had one strike, the first deportation, two strikes, the second deportation, and now here comes the pitch. Yeah. And Zedekiah has to decide what he's going to do. And Zedekiah responds, oh, I'm, a, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that if I surrender, that the king of Babylon might turn me over to my own people. 
because here Zedekiah has said, yeah, let's rebel, let's rebel. And now he's going to surrender yeah. and they're all going to pay the price. Yeah. So yeah, let us add him. Let us add that the guy, you know? And so he's afraid. And Jeremiah says, they will not hand you over. Please listen to me and what I'm telling you. You can save the city. You can save the temple. Mm. And of course, we know that he doesn't do it. Now you might say, well, how does Zedekiah know? that Jeremiah is right. Well, he's been right so far. Uh, in chapter 37, when Zedekiah asks Jeremiah for a word from God, Jeremiah tells him, yes, you're going to be given into the hand of the king of Babylon. And then he says, by the way, where are all the false prophets who said, oh, the king of Babylon will never come? Where are they now? Like now it's too late. Mm. I don't, I don't want to say I told you so, but where are they? Yeah. And so there's a little... Um, there's a little frustration there in the prophet's voice. You can just hear it as you read those chapters. But Jeremiah 38, even after all the doom and gloom, he's trying to get their attention. But if 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 a significant number of people would just say, you're right, we're sorry, mm. is there any hope here? There is, even at that last hour. But tragically, the king of Judah won't lay hold of it. Okay. So with that, I think it becomes a lot clear about why someone could find at least a glimpse of hope in this story because like you said it starts out jeremiah is very emphatic of just doom and gloom and we're just really honed in on that doom and gloom but even in the last moment there is that opportunity of uh being faithful to god and it's different from um, how a lot of Israel's likely saw it. And it's honestly a little different from how we read it. Um, a lot of the times I, I think we kind of feed into the narrative of, oh, Israel was way too bad. And because of that, God said, I give up. I'm done with you. Go off and and just get destroyed. Um, and we read just that doom and gloom of God has abandoned us. Um, but really what's going on here, and I, I love that imagery of the the potter with the clay, because the the idea that God is is shaping and molding and using that clay and constantly working towards something that's beautiful. And if the clay doesn't cooperate, um, I love the the specific imagery of the the potter adding more water so that the clay becomes workable again to create something that is beautiful. Even if it's not wanting to cooperate, the potter's determination to keep working towards something good. I, I think it's interesting how by focusing in on that choice, even in the last moment, it makes it clear that God hasn't abandoned Israel at all during this story, but it's Israel that's abandoned God. And I think that's a really important distinction that when we're so focused in on the doom and gloom, or when we're so focused in on the promises of uh, prosperity, we can kind of miss that detail. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. We can focus on we can focus on the bad and not see the good. Yeah. When we're going through a difficult time, we can and. And as we go through difficult times, this is something I would encourage people to do. Okay, maybe the times you're going through are very difficult, but keep an eye out for what are the good things that God is doing. God has assured us, if we are his people, that he's using even the stuff we would call bad to work good 
ultimately for his purpose and even for us. Mm -hmm. So maybe make a list of some of the good things you're seeing, even though the circumstances may be more difficult than good. And, you know, it's, it's a good it's a good balance to have. Yeah. And I, I also appreciate you bringing up lamentations. And there, there's other passages in Jeremiah as well where you can hear his frustration. It, there's this, um, it seems like there's this room that the Bible makes for us to lament, for us to not just be optimistic all the time or to just be like, it, it allows us that room to acknowledge the pain that we're feeling and um to to be able to bring that up to god and to acknowledge the real pain that we are feeling while also acknowledging that that pain even though it is real and even though we can feel it even though we can bring it up to god that pain doesn't contradict the hope that God truly offers. For sure. And I know we're talking about Jeremiah today, but our readers, our listeners would find a lot of um, a lot of comfort and uh, sympathy, I guess, maybe, in like-mindedness in the Psalms. Mm-hmm. Because there's a whole group of Psalms, they're not clumped together, but as you read them, you start to figure it out. The ones that begin with, Lord, where are you? <laughs> or, how long, O Lord, must we wait? Oh, oh Lord, how many are my foes? Oh Lord, you know, and, and and the people are discouraged and they're writing. And usually in those lament psalms, they talk about, if we would paraphrase it, we might say just, oh, what a what a difficult, what a sad, what a pitiful situation I'm in. Mm. But then what they come around to is truth. But I know that you're with me. Mm. I know that you're with me. And therefore, usually by the end of the psalm, they're praising God. So I'm going to stand up. I'm going to stand strong because I know that you are with me. You are my help. You are my comfort, even though things are tough. Mm-hmm. And that's what uh, I suspect Jeremiah wants them to come around to. He does have these positive things that he talks about. He talks about the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, mm-hmm. which is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. In Jeremiah chapter 32, he issues this powerful uh, demonstration of his faith. He goes out and with some of his last bit of money, he buys his uncle's property. He redeems his uncle's property. I think it's his uncle, his relative's property in Jeremiah 32, because the man needs what money he has left to just get by. But the Babylonians are moving in, and Jeremiah goes out and buys the land. And people say, what are you doing? I mean, the land's going to be, you've been saying for years, the city's going to be handed over to the Babylonians. And so you're going out and buying that land that's going to belong to them in a few months. Mm. And it puzzled Jeremiah too, because Jeremiah went and did it. And then the text records how he goes back to the Lord and he says, okay, Lord, nothing's too impossible for you. Nothing's too difficult for you, but what have I just done? Mm. I've gone and spent this money and everything that I've prophesied that you've told me to say, I've said it. And now here are the Babylonians and you tell me, go buy that land. And God's response to him is to kind of give Jeremiah back his own words. Nothing is too difficult Mm. for me. And yes, the city's going to be destroyed, but someday land will be bought and sold. Someday land will be solid again. Mm. And I think bringing it back to Jeremiah 29, 11, when, when we started this conversation, it really felt like it was th- that this 
verse is in contrast with the rest of Jeremiah, with the rest of the chapter, uh, with the rest of the histor- historical context, with the rest of the message of Jeremiah, that this promise of God's plan to, to for, for Israel to prosper, it felt like it was um, a sore thumb in light of everything else. But as we're looking through this, it feels like it's almost the kind of central point of, of Jeremiah. He's offering instead of the false hope of, hey, everything's going to be fine. We have these promises. Nothing can touch us. We're good. That is very clearly not true. Instead, Jeremiah is saying, hey, right now we are a, a crappy clay pot. Um, but that doesn't mean that God is going to give up on us. It's this promise and hope that is only possible through the violence, through the judgment. It's only through those faithful people that they are going to be able to see that prosperity eventually. Um, You know, their faith isn't in vain and it's going to be painful. It's going to be so hard. And God wants to hear that. God wants to be a part of that. Allow them that room for the Psalms, for the lamentations, um, because that pain is real. But what is more real is the faithful promises that they have in God. Not one based off of optimism or what is convenient, but what is based on truth. Absolutely. And truth is a wonderful thing. Hmm. Truth is powerful. And truth is reality from God's perspective. Here's the context. We've been talking a lot about it, Joel, already, but here, here's the context. This is the letter that Jeremiah sends to the exiles who are in Babylon because there are false prophets running around, essentially, I suspect, telling them, don't unpack your bags. We're getting out of here any day now. Yeah. This is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is beginning now in verse 5. This is what he says. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Now, see, these things take time. Yeah. It takes time to build a house and get settled in. Plant a garden, eat their produce. It takes time. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. You see, all this takes time. Mm. Multiply there, don't decrease. Seek the welfare, the Hebrew word is shalom. Mm. Seek the shalom of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf because when it experiences shalom, you will too. For this is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel says, don't let your prophets who are among you and your diviners deceive you, and don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them, for they are prophesying falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. This is the Lord's declaration. For this is what the Lord says, when 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. And then our verse, for I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration plans for your welfare, for your shalom, and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. But then let's look also 
at the context afterwards. Verse 12, you will call to me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, the Lord's declaration, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you, the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place I deported you from. And he keeps saying, this is the Lord's declaration. This is the Lord's declaration. In other words, this isn't Jeremiah's opinion. He's telling you, this is what I have from God. And he's promising you this. And interestingly too, the English does not do this, but in many languages, including in Hebrew, when you say the word you, there's a distinction between the singular and the plural. Yeah. Now, in the southern United States, we use the word y'all. Yeah, it's very convenient. Yeah, I like it. And if um, if we were reading this in the southern translation, <laughs> let's say, all these yous would be y'alls. Mm. Y'all build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Y'all take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for y'all's sons, for I know the plans I have for y'all says the Lord. Jeremiah 29, 11. It's in the context is talking about the nation. I know the plans I have for all of you as a nation to give y'all a future and a hope. The verb, or the, the noun is in the plural, mm. pronouns in the plural. And so it's talking about this, this uh, great day when God is going to recover and regather the nation and I'll be found by you. And when you seek me, when y'all seek me, when you f- you'll find me, when you look for me with all your heart, so God is promising them it will be it will be good but right now you're experiencing the consequences of sin and the false prophets are telling you okay God has sort of slapped us on the wrist and we're going to go right back within a year or two yeah. and that's just not going to be the case uh, it's just not because sometimes um, the 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 recovery the discipline has to be longer for people to really get how bad the situation was. Mm. As we start to explore how to apply Jeremiah's wisdom into our own lives, I think a great place to start is with some insight Hannah had that I think summarizes this whole conversation very well. I think the biggest thing that happens with this and other like coffee cup Bible verses that you see is that people then feel like if anything bad is happening in their life if it's not like immediately fixed or fixed within like what they consider to be a timely manner that god must be failing them Mm. and it's like oh well god promised to work things out and it's like no god promised to be with you even when things don't work out it's not about god making the situation better to your liking it is about how god is still god even when in a bad situation and i think that that when people are reading passages in like this pinterest format it is making the message of the bible everything will work out for you and not god's with you in everything it's not a bad thing to look at jeremiah 29 11 for words of hope in fact it was in moments of pain and suffering that this verse was written We just can't allow what God has promised us to become more important than God himself. Dr. Byer takes it a step further, exploring ways we can apply this message in those moments of peace as well, ways we can avoid the false hope Jeremiah warns us about. I see so many churches that seem to be somewhat complacent. Um, In other words, we have lost our sense of mission to the world. We have... um, 
I don't know if I'd go so far as saying, well, churches have just become clubs. Hmm. I think that'd be an overstatement. But in other words, are, is the church a group of people who gather at a particular building, at a particular place, hmm. on a particular day of the week to encourage each other? Well, yes, we are. Is Do we gather together to praise our God? Yes. To what extent are we still aware that there is a world out there that needs to hear about what we have, this incredible message of this incredible God, and how can we take it to them? Do we have a fortress mentality that is we're just kind of dug in, hmm. hanging on to the people we have? Or is the church more than that? Is the church really a movement hmm. to reach other people? And how do we do that? And how do we remain relevant to a culture that's, how are we, how do we, um, the, in Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount said, you are the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world, so let your light shine. How do we be salt and light in a world that's really becoming more tasteless mm. and darker? How do we How do we do that? And so it's a warning to us, don't let the church become so complacent that we say, well, you know, you, you say, we, we've got our pastor, we've got our music, we've got our building, we're good. Mm. Yeah. Well, maybe not. Maybe not. And and certainly there's room for church people in a culture that's getting darker to gather together and to affirm each other. Yes, I'm going through difficulties too. I lost my job. Well, let's let's pray for you and let's take care of one another. There's room for us to take care of our own, but also at the same time to keep an eye on those fields that Jesus said were ripe for harvest. Mm. Yeah. What are, are the next questions that we really need to be asking to, to dig deeper into what Jeremiah has to say here? It's, it's certainly good for us when we read Jeremiah, when we read any of the prophets, it's so tempting to say, oh yeah, look how those people were, mm. those people, and not to realize, no, these are the people of God, and to what extent are we short-sighted in our own assessment of ourselves or of our own church. I've often told students, don't look to the right or to the left when you're trying to determine how good of a person you are, because you can always find people you're better than right. in general. Now, you might be wrong, but in general, you can look at those people and say, well, I'm better than they are. And then you look at somebody else and you think, okay, well, I'm not quite where he is or mm -hmm. where she is yet in terms of my goodness, but but I'm doing pretty well. I'm certainly better than, and you make a list of those people that you're better than. Well, instead, we should look up. Hmm. And when we look to God and the Lord Jesus and his holy righteous standard in his word, then we realize that on our best day, we fall so far short of God's expectation. And so that's our standard, not the person to our left or right. That's not our standard. Mm. Our standard is God and his word. So as I read Jeremiah and I read about him saying, you know, you trust in words of Shekhar, you trust in, in the lie. Well, I'm not looking at a temple and a priesthood and the line of David today mm. for me as a as a 21st century Christian. Yeah. But in what areas of my life, maybe we could ask, in what areas of my life am I living according to words of Shekhar? Mm. Are there false areas of security in which I put my trust? Maybe it's the fact that, well, I've, I've been on the rolls of this church for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. Maybe it's the money that I have in my bank account, certainly that is a sign of God's blessing. Mm. 
he must be blessing my life. And I've got this, I've got this. And so kind of the material, uh, the materialistic kind of approach. In what areas of my life am I maybe not trusting in the word of God, but in words of my culture, Mm. or even in words of well-meaning friends who say, no, no, you're good. Look at this. Well, maybe. And related to that, just the idea that God really desires holiness in me, Mm. that the world might see it. And as the world sees it, the world can be drawn to it. And, and Joel, I have so many friends who say, well, you know, I just don't know my Bible that well. I don't know my verses that well. I don't know this. Well, okay, well, there's a remedy. I mean, just keep reading. <laughs> and that's not a put down. That's just, that's just a, that's just a reality. Yeah. But, but what I come back to is, and I, I tell, I tell, um, I tell students a lot. I said, listen, you know, I've had a lot more years to read the Bible than you, but but start reading, just start reading, go through it in a year, whatever, and just continue to read it, immerse yourself in it. But meanwhile, if all you can say is, you know, I don't know a lot of the verses yet. I'm kind of a new Christian. I've only been a Christian a few years, but I just know that my life is different now mm. that I, now that I started to follow Jesus and it's amazing how people are drawn to that. They have a relationship with you, yeah. and you just share from your heart, and they're attracted to that. At the beginning of our time together, I think it was you said your grandmother that had Jeremiah twenty nine eleven plastered all over her house. Yeah. I would encourage people, if you're listening today and you have some of those plaques around your house, don't go take them down. Mm. That's fine. Jeremiah 29, 11 says that God has plans and he does for his children. He has plans for us, plans to prosper us, not to harm us, plans to give us a future and a hope. But just remember the context of that, Mm. the context of Jeremiah's letter in which he says these words. It's the darkest hour in Old Testament history. Mm. Things are so bad. And yet in that context, God can lovingly say to his people, look, these times are tough, but they're going to get better. And it'll be a while, but I know the plans I have for you, plural, y'all, and plans to give all of you a future and a hope. That is my plan. That is my goal. And so to realize, wow, if God in the darkest hour in Old Testament history would promise his people these things, and I'm not going through a dark period like that, then maybe just maybe I can trust God for my future as well, Mm. because it is important to trust God for our future. And he does have a great future for us. Mm. I learned so much while talking with Dr. Byer, too much to include in this episode. But if you want to continue your learning journey with him and other brilliant scholars, he's got an incredible resource that is worth checking out. We just started a, a ministry. It, the website is EzraJourney.com. Some of the resources are longer book studies or overviews of the Old Testament. And in those courses, you'll have 18 to 20 hours of narrated PowerPoint talks on the prophets or on Genesis through Song of Solomon. So it's an Old Testament survey kind of thing. Mm. There's an in-depth course on Isaiah, but then there are also shorter studies. So a six-week flyover, Scripture's grand story through the Old Testament, Mm. putting together the puzzle of the New Testament. There are some devotionals you can sign up for and subscribe to. And so at whatever level people want to engage in their spiritual journey, to study the Word, to live the Word, and to teach the Word in their context, then we hope that EzraJourney.com will help them with that. 
You can find a link to that in the show notes below, or just head over to EzraJourney.com. Thank you so much once again, Dr. Byer, for coming on the show, and thank you for listening to That Won't Preach. I hope this podcast can be an encouragement as you continue to ask hard questions and explore your faith. If you liked the show, let me know by leaving a rating in your podcast player and by leaving a review. For more episodes and resources, be sure to head over to bit.ly slash that won't preach. Again, that's bit.ly slash that won't preach. Mm-hmm.